This is a poem prayer by Lillian Cox. Unto all peoples of the earth, a holy child brought light. And now never in the darkest place can it be utter night. No flickering torch, no wavering fire, but light, the life of men. Whatever clouds may veil the sky, never is night again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In this Epiphany season, we have journeyed with the young Jesus through various important moments in his early life, and we finally arrive at his baptism in the River Jordan, where Jesus publicly identifies himself and his mission. Uh, I want to consider the power of self-identification, just for a moment, as it relates to ourselves, and then, of course, as it relates to Jesus. Uh, whenever I have to go into a hospital, I put on the collar because it gives me power. Uh, it gives me a sense of power. You know, when you wear a collar now in most places, you're, you're seen as a, as a threat or judgmental or something. People have all these associations about what ministers might be like, but if you're in a hospital and you wear a collar, you can pretty much do whatever you want and look up any person on any file. I mean, it's really fantastic. I feel very good about myself in a hospital. But I'm identified with the clergy cast. I saw this in high school. My cousin has a severe mental disability. And you may know this, that people in high school are sinners. And... Uh, and uh, and somebody was particularly cruel to my cousins. Uh, there was a bully in the school who pushed him against a locker and spat in his face. And there was an, uh, another young man who saw it named Craig. Craig was a big football dude. He didn't want to mess with him. And he grabbed the bully by the throat and slammed him against a locker and said, if you ever do that again, I will break your jaw. Let me tell you, uh, Steve was from then on Craig's shadow. Uh, anywhere Craig went, Steve went, because he knew if he, were, if he were associated with that personality, he would be all right. And so we often do this. We identify ourselves with particular figures, particular movements, because we think it might give us strength or credibility. And I want to consider, uh, for a moment with you, Jesus' first public act in which two identifications are made. Uh, the first is that Jesus identifies with the river people, and the second is that the Father identifies with Jesus. I, I want to set the stage with the early portion of the reading, which I'm not going to focus on uh, as much, but it's important so that we get the, uh, the Germans would say the Zitz in Leben, get the context. Okay, here it is. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, who, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that John the Baptist is a slightly unconventional figure, but I want to say that his invitation to the crowd is more unconventional than his personality. He is inviting people 
to come away from the city into the wilderness, the place of purification in Israelite history, into the wilderness to have a public rinsing that would demonstrate an inward change toward the idea of sin. Uh, and I, why, why this is unconventional is because nowhere in the Old Testament does it command you to be baptized for the remission of sin. It commands you to go to the temple and bring a sacrifice and have it killed as your substitute so that you can go home with a clear conscience. John is saying, leave all that behind, come out of the city, come to me, and I'm going to baptize you and prepare you to meet God. And so what happens is this Woodstock-esque phenomenon, uh, this organic phenomenon in which John the Baptist is surrounded by hordes of people that vary in their social standing. We know this from the other Gospels. Sadducees come to John the Baptist and Pharisees come to John the Baptist. And tax collectors come and soldiers come and, and people that, that are just sort of average Joes show up. Lots of people. In fact, this passage uses the hyperbolic language, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, meaning a lot of people. A lot of people from the city and the country come to uh, experience this washing. And so John has around him a horde of river people, people who have the courage to be honest and publicly declare in front of John, this prophetic figure, but also their countrymen and women, I'm a sinner. The problem is not just my culture. The problem is not just politics. The problem isn't just the fact that religious leaders are rotten. The problem is me. I'm the problem. And I need to deal with me in light of the truth of God, and I need an external rinsing uh, that can be provided in this location. These are people who are willing to take a risk, they're courageous, and they want to have a backstage perspective of their lives. They want to understand what's really going on in the core and bring it out through the means of confession and then receive this washing from John. And so that's the stage. That's the unconventional uh, prophet and his unconventional invitation. And then we have the most remarkable beginning of a public ministry. And this is the first identification. Jesus identifies with the river people. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, whenever a, a, a politician, whenever a monarch, whenever a, a figure of some uh, status decides to venture in a new direction, they attempt to set the tone in their first announcement related to their, their particular new interest, their new direction. Notice what Jesus does in his first public act. He could have gone anywhere, and he could have done, done anything to set the tone. And he chooses the most unlikely act, and what is arguably, at least from John the Baptist's perspective in the other Gospels, an inappropriate act. An inappropriate act. He decides to be baptized. Now, I want to notice with you what Jesus does not do in his first uh, public identification. He does not go to the mountain. That is to say, he doesn't go up the hill to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go to the place of lofty religious expression where they pray prayers, sing psalms, burn incense. He doesn't hang out with the bean-counting Pharisees and the litigious Sadducees. He doesn't do that. Nor does he go to the valley 
metaphor for the gutter. You know, the place of unmitigated sin where the revels continue to rage without any regret. You know, the, the brothels, the place with lots of uh, track marks on the arm, things like that. He doesn't go there now. He'll go there someday, but not now. Instead, he goes to the river. He goes to the river. The river is not a sinless place. The river is the country of candor. It's the place where you go when you have the courage to be honest that you are in over your head. It's the place of vulnerability. And it's the place of repentance. Now, repentance, the word in Hebrew is shuv. It means to turn. But it isn't just a turn in behavior, though that's part of it. It has a deeper core. Uh, to, to have a, 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 a shuv-like experience means that your heart uh, is, is somehow experiencing a new pain. A new pain because you realize that who, not just what you do, but who you are is out of accord with beauty, truth, and holiness. And there's something sick about that. And there's something about you that needs to change. And you, it isn't just you need to smoke fewer cigarettes and not use bad language. It's deeper than that. And there's something about you that has to come into contact with, with God in such a way that your heart is transformed so that your actions will be transformed. But you, not just your behavior, needs to change. And so John is preaching this message and baptizing people so that they'll repent. And what does Jesus do? He stands in the baptism line. He stands with all of the other reprobates. He stands with the drunks and the people with bad tempers and the, 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 the young women who pledged to wait till marriage but didn't and the people that lie about what they know or what they've read and the people that malign others and talk badly about their families. And, and he stands right there with them all. And he's in the line. And he's in the line for the same washing that they're about to receive. Now, the irony, of course, is the only one in the line that doesn't need to be baptized is Jesus. And Jesus fails John's criteria. It's repentance. It's for sinners. And yet Jesus is the one in the line, and when John, in other Gospels, protests this, you don't belong here. It's you, who sh Jesus, who should be baptizing me, John. Jesus pushes right back and says this is the right thing to do. And so uh, Jesus is, in fact, baptized. Uh, in the 1940s, uh, there was a, an epidemic of lice, and people were uh, exceptionally concerned that lice would be spread by visiting public pools. And some of these pools, these public pools, would do rigorous lice checks before people were admitted in Georgia, uh, near Atlanta, there was a beautiful, large public pool, and they did special screening for children that came from poor families. These children were inspected for lice and had to receive a certificate of health before being admitted, and they and their parents would wait in what were called lice lines. And it was an ugly scene, and if you were in the lice line, you would be mocked and you were seen as poor and filthy and unwell. One uh, particularly hot August day, the lice line was very long. And strolling down the other side of the pool, about to jump in, was the mayor of the town who was wealthy and uh, well-respected, probably the wealthiest and most well-respected person in the town. He saw the lice line, and he walked around the pool and decided to stand, he himself, at the back of the line. The word got out 
that the mayor had joined the Lice Line. And in a few hours, other local celebrities decided to join it as well. You had the bank manager show up in the Lice Line, the principal of the local high school show up in the Lice Line, and you even had a few Anglican clerics that showed up in the Lice Line. Uh, but it changed the tenor of the humiliating act of standing in that line, the line of ailment, disease. Uh, and that's the point, that Jesus is the mayor. That Jesus Christ is the mayor who plods along in the life line with the river people and has rinsed right along with them. Why? Because he is willfully identifying with us in our crisis. Uh, he is connecting his entire mission right from the start to troubled people, people who look like you, who look like me. This impulse to identify with the guilty, this impulse is in his blood. This is why St. Paul can write many years later, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. What started in the baptism of the River Jordan ended in the baptism of blood on Calvary. There is a second identification in this passage. The Father identifies with Jesus. This is verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is what theologians call a theophany, or a multi-sensory phenomenon, an appearing, a holy appearing, an appearing, in this case, of God, that involves both sights and sounds. We have, of course, the heavens being torn open. The word is borderline uh, violent. In Greek, it's uh, schizo. That's where we get the English word schizophrenia. It literally is translated to cleave into two. Uh, this word is also used later on in the gospel accounts whenever the uh, curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom as Jesus dies on the cross, a tearing apart. And so that word suggests that this is a this is something that God is doing. He is rending the heavens and giving us uh, a vision. And then something else happens. The Spirit descends. Now in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching, he says that Jesus Christ was anointed, anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. That actually isn't just a, a religious idea. That happened in time, and this is that time. This is, if you will, the christening of Jesus Christ. Jesus was always God incarnate, but at this moment, he is christened, becomes the anointed one. He is anointed with the Holy Spirit, who falls upon him like a dove, set aside and empowered for his future ministry. And then the Father speaks. The Father speaks audible words. Normally, God communicates in Holy Scripture through the vehicle of a prophet, through a king, through writings. Here, there's an audible voice. And the audible voice offers words of belonging and affirmation. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
beautiful words. Even from a human perspective, if you haven't heard something like that from your father, you will be impoverished. If you don't have some sort of father figure in your life, a mother figure in your life, a parental figure telling you that they love you and they're proud of you and they're for you, you'll have an impoverished heart. You need it from some source. But here we see it from the ultimate authority, the Father speaking to the Son words of belonging and affirmation. Now, I want to note only one thing about it, and it's the timing of these words. It comes to Jesus before Jesus does anything. Not one miracle, not one parable. Nobody is demonstrably helped. Not yet. Before Jesus does a stitch of labor, he is given the affirmation of his own Father. And that belovedness is what fuels Jesus his entire life. His ministry derives its power from prior love. And so this theophany, if you can tell, if you can see it, is Trinitarian. We have Father, Son, and Spirit all acting together and highlighting the work of Jesus the Christ. And so we see the Trinity united in purpose, but, but different in person. We have the Father, distinct from the Son, who speaks to the Son. We have the Son who receives the word of the Father, and the Spirit who descends upon the Son from the Father. Trinitarian theophany. These two identifications produce a sacred syllogism. Really, a sacred syllogism. So if you're into logic, here's a, I'll toss you a bone. Uh, uh, here it is. So if Jesus identifies with sinners, and the Father identifies with Jesus, then the Father identifies with sinners. Here's the point of that syllogism. Trinitarian theology is not esoteric. It's not meant to be confined in a library. Trinitarian theology is pastoral. Because when we speak of the compassion of Jesus, we are speaking about the one that the Council of Nicaea professed. And this is what they professed about him, that he is co-equal and consubstantial with the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And so the compassion of Jesus toward you is the compassion of the Father toward you. Belovedness, in other words, is the script of the whole world. It's what underwrites everything. And so it isn't that the Father is antithetical to you. He has a different purpose. And Jesus has to somehow uh, cajole the treasure chest of mercy from the Father's grip. It's for God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. And so we have agreement uh, in the Holy Trinity as Christ is offered to the world. Two identifications. Jesus identifies with the sinners. The Father identifies with Jesus. And so now I want to think about us just for a moment, us as the river people, the sordid masses who have been brought to God through baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do we learn here about our own journey? I think we learn something about shame, and we learn something about sonship. The identification of Jesus with sinners alleviates shame, our shame. Brene Brown, the uh, author and therapist, says that uh, shame is not only uh, bearing the weight of guilt, but allowing guilt to convince us that we are both unloved and unlovable. If you are afraid of exposure, of people really seeing you 
as you are and not as you pretend to be. If that notion terrifies you, thinking that if anybody really knew what happened when I was 13, if anybody really knew what happened on prom night, if anybody really knew what, what actually occurred in my last uh, dalliance, if anybody understood uh, the hate that is in my heart that I only can contain some of the time, if anybody knew about the abortion that I had in 1997, if anybody saw me as I really am, they would sprint in the other direction and they would never come back. Well, I want to offer you a doctrinal consolation. It's the doctrine of omniscience. Because we believe in a God without limitation, uh, he knows and sees all. As perfect perception, he has no astigmatism when it comes to your life and mine. My question to you is simply this. Do you think God didn't know what he was getting into when he claimed you as his own? Do you think that he was unaware? God expects more failure from you than you expect from you. Because he knows your whole story and all of the, the sins that you've forgotten. He knows all of your future and the sins that you can't even anticipate. And in knowing all of those things, decided to sit next to you on the riverbank with his feet in the same water. Jesus sits next to you in the lice line and says to you, I know you, and I love you, and I choose you. That is how shame dies and repentance is birthed. We call it prevenient grace. It's that grace comes to you before you know what it is. And when prevenient grace, that I am loved first, and the, the word of belovedness comes first before change, when you understand that, then repentance becomes one of the most beautiful and inviting things in our own spiritual experience. And the identification of the Father with Jesus gifts us with what the New Testament calls in Greek sonship. We can call it adoption. While Jesus is uniquely God's Son by his uh, nature, God from God, light from light, he makes room for many contracts of adoption and brings many other sons and daughters to glory. Galatians 4 puts it this way, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. John prophesied that the one coming after him would baptize us all with the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Makes us children of God. No more vessels of wrath, but children of God. And that's why being in Christ means that we are incorporated into the one over whom the Father said, You, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We may think that our lives are built upon nothing but wreckage, waste, regret, sin. That is not true. That is not your script. You, at the most foundational level, are a son or a daughter of the High King of Heaven. That's all I've got tonight, friends. <laughs> so remember Jesus' baptism. Remember the tearing sky. And remember the dove.
remember the voice. And remember that God is with you in the lifeline of your own life. So may shame be damned. No flickering torch, no wavering fire, but light, the life of men. Whatever clouds may veil the sky, never is night again. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you.